Live from Utrecht. This is Bitcoin. Explained. Hey, Shors. What's up? Did you see the amazing announcement that Bitcoin Magazine made this week? Um, the conference is coming to Amsterdam. I heard. Around the corner. Exciting. It's about half an hour from Utrecht. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's pretty close. Can we expect you there? Uh, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. I'll be there. I'll be there for sure. Sure, we're going to talk about... We're going to talk about address reuse. So this is not really a new topic. It's not something we haven't discussed at least um, sort of uh, tangentially before. For example, two episodes ago, Ruben was here to talk about his proposal for... What was it called again? Stealth addresses? Privacy addresses? Dark addresses? Silent payments. Silent payments. There you go. Thank you. Um, so yeah, but we never really tackled the concept of uh, address reuse in itself. And there is sort of a newsworthy reason for us to do this this week. But we'll get to that in a bit, right? That's right. So before we start, address reuse. It's something that's discouraged in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it actually mean when you're reusing addresses? And I'm I'm yep. specifically asking about what does this mean sort of under the hood? Because we've discussed addresses before and addresses aren't actually a thing in the in the Bitcoin blockchain, right? So what does it yeah. mean if you're reusing addresses? Right, because an address is, is something you give to a wallet. It's not something that actually exists on the blockchain. Uh, an address is an instruction, essentially, to the wallet of the payer that says, this is, you know, how you need to send me coins. And usually what the address will contain is a public key or a hash of a public key. Um, And then as a sender, you will put that on the blockchain. So the money actually goes to, well, either a public key or the hash of the public key. And so what does that mean for address reuse? It just basically means that you're making multiple transactions uh, where you're sending coins to uh, the same public key or the same hash of the public key. And is this immediately clear when you are sending the money? Is it clear that it's being sent to the same quote-unquote address? Or is it only clear when you're sending money from that address again? No, it's immediately clear. It's so immediate. you can see on the blockchain for each transaction uh, what the destination is of that transaction. So you can see that it was sent. Yeah, you can see that the destination has been used before if if you uh, keep an eye on what's on the blockchain. Right, exactly. So this is, uh, you sometimes see the, a, a very common example of this would be like donation addresses, where someone just posts an address on a website for donations. And then because of that, you can track exactly how much the donations someone is getting, right? That's sort of the classic example. Yeah. But there exactly. are more examples. There are, or at least a couple of years ago, there were bad wallets, or at least I would consider them bad, bad wallets that wouldn't generate new addresses automatically. I think these days that's mostly resolved. Yeah, I mean, there were there was a trade-off in the beginning uh, because before we had this thing called hierarchical deterministic wallets. Um, so right now you write down these 12 words and these 12 words can generate an infinite number of addresses or not actually infinite, but quite a lot. And, but before that, it was the case that every address was generated using a unique, randomly generated private key. And so in the beginning, you might create a wallet and it may have, and it might start with 100 addresses in it, which means 100 different private keys, and you would have to back those up. So that's already a challenge because you can't write that down. It's too much information, so you'd maybe put it on a USB stick. But then if you've used up all the 100 addresses and you create address number 101, 
uh, and you forget to make a backup of that, you just don't have a backup of any coins that go to that last address. So, so there was a trade-off between backups and, uh, and privacy in the beginning. Um, and that's one of the reasons probably why wallets, not all wallets created fresh addresses. Right. And now that's resolves. Now wallets just use deterministic addresses. Yep. And you only need, need one backup. Okay. So though there's still plenty of places, especially exchanges have a habit of giving you an address where yeah. you get the same address every time. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, so once in a while I'll still run into like a web shop that will not generate a new address or, um, there are more examples. Yeah. Okay. So then the next question, I, I think there are, why is this a problem? And I, I'd say we can easily categorize this in sort of two or three categories. Mm -hmm. One category is privacy, and then arguably another category is censorship resistance. Mm -hmm. There's a good Bitcoin wiki page about address reuse, which sort of lists these problems and examples, but we'll, we'll go over it in this podcast as well. I'm not going to read out loud the whole URL, but if you just Google address reuse Bitcoin wiki, you'll, you'll find the page. Mm -hmm. So yeah, privacy censorship resistance. And the, this wiki gives three pretty good examples of why privacy is a problem. So let's uh, run through this real fast. So one problem if you're reusing addresses and how it harms your privacy is that it reveals your savings. So, you know, if someone pays you, then that person can, for example, easily see how much money is on that address. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might start uh, talking to people about this. And before you know it, your kids are kidnapped and they know exactly how much ransom to demand, right? That's, that's yeah. one example. Uh, another example is exchange front running. It's another example that's on the wiki. So, uh, you know, you're not generating a new address on your exchange and that address is, you know, known to belong to that exchange through blockchain analysis. And then one day you're sending a lot of money to that exchange so people can see that and people figure you're going to sell a lot of Bitcoin and people might want to front run your sale by selling their first their Bitcoin first and, and buying it back cheaper by the time your money finally arrives at the exchange. Yeah. Oh yeah, the first example the third example is so let's say you're being paid your salary on your known address and then one day you get a pay rise. Your landlord might be able to see that and decide it's time to charge a little bit more rent since you can clearly afford that. Right, so so basically, it's similar to the first example. And the first one was mostly about seeing how much savings somebody has, and the other one is how much income somebody has. But it's the same kind of problem. Yeah. So these are just some examples of why it's bad if you don't have any financial privacy. A fourth example, so the censorship resistant example is, let's say uh, you have. Maybe we can stick to the first three first. So I think one comment there is that reusing addresses helps with these issues. It does not completely remove them. Because, for example, with the savings, uh, you might use a new address every time, but if all your savings are on the first address, you know, maybe people can still link it to you. So it's a, it's a mitigation. It helps to use multiple addresses, but it's not, it doesn't completely perfectly solve these privacy issues. Oh, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I, I would say address reuse is like a bare minimum. Like that's the very least you should do to protect your privacy. And then there's a lot more you can do after that. But if you're not even reusing, uh, if you're not even 
if you're reusing addresses, like then you know, there's literally no privacy whatsoever. That, that that's the least you can do. Yeah. Okay. Then there's the censorship resistant uh, argument, which is if you're let let's say you're uh, you have some kind of political cause and you're receiving donations on an address, then someone might want to send you some Bitcoin from an exchange, but that exchange doesn't like your political cause, so they refuse to send the payments. That's another example that's easily resolved. If yeah, you and, and this, new addresses. this goes to address blacklisting in any kind of form, right? Somebody might be ordering miners to block specific addresses. Um, and yeah, reusing addresses makes that whole cat and mouse game significantly more difficult okay so that's privacy and censorship resistance and then i think the third bucket of problems is maybe a little bit more interesting and that's sort of what way you were gearing this episode towards that's security yep so sure reusing addresses is kind of bad for security as well right uh well reusing addresses is there are certain security vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities that will get a lot worse when you're using addresses. Right. So it's not that the reusing of addresses is necessarily super insecure, but yeah, there are definitely some attacks that you can think of and that have actually happened that would not happen if you happen to change your addresses. Right. So what are these? What are these? What are the attacks that are possible if you're reusing addresses? Yeah. So the one that's mentioned in the wiki is uh, something called the same K value in multiple signatures. But basically what that means is that um, if you have a private key and you create a signature with it, mm -hmm. then that signature contains, well, that signature contains another piece of data, which is a, should be a randomly generated number. Um, and as long as that randomly generated number is really random, then you can use the same private key twice and you can sign different messages, right? Because every transaction is essentially a message. Right. So when you're spending money from an address once, you're sending a message using that private key if you're spending money again from that same address because there's another coin perhaps that was sent to the same address, you're sending another message with the same private key. And as long as you're doing the random number generation correctly, that's all fine, there's no problem. But if there's something wrong in that mechanism and you are not generating a random number, but for example, you are using the number 0000, if you do that twice, now everybody can steal your money because they can know your private key. That's just a cryptographic property. And so the, the main protection against that is to make sure your wallet doesn't make that mistake by far. But if your wallet made that mistake, but it was not reusing addresses, then you're still okay. Yo, what is going on guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. How many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what, Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero-management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. 
Is that really right? Is what you said really right? If you don't use a random address, people can just pick your signature from... No, you, they can if pick you your private this, key from your signature? That doesn't it, sound right to me. If you sign two different messages, so two different transactions using the same private key, and you're doing something really, really, really wrong during the signing, namely not generating the right random number, yeah, then people can steal your money. That sounds, and that's actually the mechanism that's used that by bad, uh, by these uh, by one episode that we talked about the discrete law contracts. Uh, one of the mechanisms to do the discrete law contract is that somebody, like the oracle, says, "Like I'm either going to sign yes or I'm going to sign no," and if they sign both, you can steal the money. And so that's in that case, it's by design that you can steal the money by that mistake. Oh yeah. But wallets can make that mistake accidentally, and they have in the past. Now there are ways to prevent that that don't even re require random data. It's called a pseudo random data. So you 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 generate a random number, but you use the transaction itself to generate the random number, and because no two transactions are identical, it's always going to be a different number. So this is. A different problem, because one of the problems that I've heard about address reuse and um, being able to steal money. But I would say it's not really about address reuse, right? It helps. But in this case, this particular example that I just mentioned could also happen with RBF if your wallet made that mistake. Because RBF, you would make one transaction with one Satoshi byte using the private key, and then you make another transaction that bumps the fee to two Satoshi byte. You'd be using the same private key twice. And if, if your wallet made that particular mistake, you would lose your money during the fee bump. So, so. What, I, what I was getting at, I thought it was only possible if there were quantum computers. Nope. So if there were quantum computers tomorrow, then you, they would be able to extract private keys from signatures. But you're saying this is already possible if there's no random data included in the signature? Yeah, so the signature indeed consists of, yeah. Yeah, if you make, if you, yeah, that mistake was already there. It's been exploited in the wild. There were wallets that made that mistake and coins were stolen. And there's really? probably still people out there scanning the blockchain for people making that mistake and then very quickly stealing the money. Hmm. So um, it's very different from quantum attacks. We can talk about those though. I mean, I brought it up. So yeah, well, what about them? Is what I just described correct? Like it's not so much from signatures. So what, uh, what happens with quantum at least the idea of a quantum computers in theory one day is that if there's a public key on the blockchain visible, then the quantum computer can find the corresponding private key. And that means that that's not a problem if that public key is never used again. Hence the suggestion to reuse addresses. Right. So, so right, but this, because uh, the public key is only revealed when money is spent. Yes, it, at least until Taproot it was. Yeah, right. So, so when this discussion was uh, very big, uh, what, what transactions were doing generally is sending money not to a public key, but to the hash of the public key, which quantum computers probably cannot deal with, at least not as efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, but once you spend it, uh, in order to spend it, you have to reveal the public key. And so that's when the clock starts ticking and the quantum computer could try and steal the money. Now, in, the, in a scenario where you don't reuse addresses... Um, there's only a very short period of time, right? There's between the moment you make the transaction and it goes in the mempool and the moment it confirms in a block. That's when the quantum computer could could steal the money because it could figure out what the private key is and, and basically try to fee bump uh, a transaction that goes through themselves. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, could then be stolen by other quantum computers. So, you know, it creates a bit of a rat race. But 
this is the problem. However, um, well, for various reasons, uh, one being that there's already a lot of coins on the blockchain that have the public key known. Um, with Taproot, you're just spending to a public key. Yeah, the reason there's a lot of coins on the blockchain that of which the public key is known is, for example, because a lot of user, uh, people used XPUBs. Yeah, right. exactly. Like, and then the question is, if if that XPUB is known by anyone, um, they know all those public keys. So yeah. here the wallet providers know it, and maybe somebody, some government goes after them. Um, there's all sorts of reasons. But the point is, there's so many coins out there for which the public key is known that if it gets stolen by a quantum computer, it would just crash the market. Um, however, what's important to note there is it takes long. the quantum computer would have longer, right? Because if the public key is already known, then you can just start trying to brute force it and take as much time as you need. Mm-hmm. Versus the example where we talked about before, when you only have a few minutes to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, we know the first coins that were mined in the very beginning, when coins were mined, they were not sent to a hash of the public key; they were sent to a public key. So that that's already quite a lot of coins. Yeah. So so that's what the quantum computer does. It has nothing to do with signatures, though. Has to do with spending. Yeah, I know. I know we're taking a bit of a detour, but while we are on this detour, do you think? And, and a lot of people do. Like this is a question I get very often. Like, is quantum computer? You know, is the potential of quantum computer something we should start worrying about? Should start thinking about? Like, to what extent? Where Where's your mind on this point? Well, I think it's good to think about it, but I don't have the productive capacity to think about it because I don't understand cryptography, let alone quantum cryptography, to enough of a degree that I could come up with uh, a new way to deal with it. So I try to listen to the few people who do keep an eye on that. And it's not that many. It's like two or three. Um, And as soon as they say, hey, look at this possibility, then maybe I'll say, okay, let's have a look at that. But from what I've heard, for example, from uh, Peter Weiler, Sipa, um, and some others, said like there are some some mechanisms out there that would be safe against quantum computers. However, they would make transactions really, really large. Like, I don't know, like 10 kilobytes, some like crazy transaction size. And they would be very hard on, on blockchain validation. So they would just increase the amount of CPU that's needed. And also they don't have many of the nice properties that Store has. Um, so, you know, all these things we talked about for that make Taproot so great, uh, signature aggregation, uh, you know, the, the ability to combine signatures and to do cool stuff like the uh, discrete log context we talked about, all that stuff. The question is whether you can still do that with quantum secure algorithms, and I'm not sure if that's true. Um, so this is a case where the longer you wait, the more people will come up with better methodologies, and perhaps also the easier it is to, to do whatever block size increase is necessary to even fit this stuff, you know? Right. Um, and the other side of it is like, how long is this going to take? And that could be, you know, tens of years or millions of years. I have no idea. There's a lot of hype about quantum computers, um, which is, you know, a lot of it is actually just hype, but there are people working on it. Right. And, you know, there's this one optimistic prediction I think I've heard from uh, Stephen Wolfram, known from Wolfram Alpha. And I th- I believe his take... Or one of his theories, and he's not sure about that, so we, we can't really count on that, is that the whole idea of speeding things up with quantum computer is like a mirage in the sense that theoretically it should be faster, and you can see that, that it's faster, 
But in order to actually get the measurement out of the quantum computer to, to actually use that information, every second you've gained basically on the way in, you're going to lose on the way out. So the idea there would be like you're not actually going to speed up because it's going to get more and more slow to, to actually measure it. But that's not proven. And so we can't count on it. We can't say, well, maybe it's not going to happen. So let's just ignore the problem. Right. Okay, that was a big detour. Let's but yeah, get but so how this relates to address reuse, it used to, you know, in, in the case of where you, you would use the hash, uh, then address reuse would be nice because then your exposure to the quantum computer is only a few minutes. Well, not reusing addresses yeah. would be nice, is what exactly. you mean. If, yeah. if you don't reuse addresses, then your exposure to the quantum computer is only a few minutes in the case where you use hashes instead of public keys. And that's, of course, a fallback we could always go back to, I guess. If there is really a quantum computer, you could say, oh, this is not good. We're seeing Satoshi's coins getting stolen. Well, I guess that's great for the whoever steals them. Probably not so good for the price. But hey, if you want to protect your coins, you may want to use the hash of a public key for now. And just I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know that they're being stolen even, right? Like they're just being spent. Yeah, but the, the fact that they are suddenly getting spent... Um, very slowly, perhaps, it may be at an exponentially increasing pace because, you know, the first quantum computer might take a year to break the first, you know, the first public key of the first block, or maybe the Genesis block, and then, you know, maybe the second quantum computer takes six months to do it, and so the second block gets spent, and then it goes faster and faster and faster and faster. But at some point, people want to brag about it, right? So they're gonna I mean, it depends how much money you can earn by keeping your mouth shut, maybe. Yeah, not that much, probably in the beginning. Because if you're stealing, like it takes you a year to steal 50 Bitcoin from the first block, and that's worth, what, um, that's 100,000? Like a, mil a million bucks? No, it's 100,000 right now, isn't it? 50 is like oh, it's a million. 100 bucks. Yeah, it's a million. Oh, sorry, did I say 100 bucks? No, what yeah, you're I right. It's, it's, I said a million bucks, right? Yeah, you said it right. Yeah. So, okay, great. That's, that's a, you know, it's a nice amount of money. You can buy lots of Frappuccinos, but you probably spend a couple billion on your quantum computer. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really justify spending that much money on it. And, and that depends on how fast it is. If from day one, it's super fast and you can steal all the Bitcoin, then it might be uh, worth doing and worth keeping it a secret. Sure. I think it's time to end this detour. And get back to the main topic of address reuse. Yeah. And the the, the final topic, uh, the the final category. Well, it's still the, the category of security. And then the, this is sort of the reason we're talking about all of this, is that we we found this on the Bitcoin Optech newsletter. There was recently a new vulnerability found mm -hmm. called the referred to as the Hertzbleed attack. And this could affect Bitcoin and especially address reuse. Is that right? Yep. So what is the Hertz bleed attack? So I don't know in detail, but basically Hertz is the frequency, right? So a 50 Hertz is like a beeping sound. Mm -hmm. And so computers or CPUs... So it's a pun. We have a, no, we have a pun in our episode again. It, well, it refers to the heartbleed attack, right? I would assume. Hertz yeah, bleed, so the pun is quite indirect because the word Hertz is the word for frequency, right? But it's named after a, a guy named Hertz, who happened to be a researcher who, f who who came up with this idea. But the last name of that person is actually the Jiddish word for heart. So... Oh, so yeah. it's even better than I thought. Yes, it is. But I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's deliberate. I mean, it sounds the same, but it's one letter difference. I mean, even the logo is sort of similar. Like, this is deliberate for sure. 
Well, the reference to Hertz is, but in the sense of the frequency, not Hertz, which is heart. Right, right, right. So anyway. Anyways, sure. So what is the Hertz bleed attack? So, so I think the general principle is that is that of a timing side channel attack, which we'll, we'll explain in more detail. But it basically, I believe it has to do with how frequency, how CPUs change frequencies depending on what they're doing. Um, but I don't actually know that that well, so I'll just describe the general problem of these, these side channel attacks and how they relate to address reuse. Okay, yeah. So the idea is when you're, when you're actually making a signature, the act of making a signature involves doing some sort of mathematical operation on the message, sort of the transaction, mm-hmm. and you're doing that mathematical operation using your private key. And, and so how does that work in practice? Well, your computer looks at your private key and starts, it's 256 bits, it starts at the first bit, that's either a zero or a one, and then it does one calculation if it's a zero and another calculation if it's a one, mm-hmm. essentially. It's kind of like, or you could say it's, it's doing multiplications, for example, or some, some uh, elliptic curve operation. It does that on every bit. So the problem there is that when you're doing an operation with a zero, your CPU is going to behave slightly different than when you're doing an operation on a one, if you're not careful. So when you're writing a cryptographic library, you want to make sure, and the reason is, well, I'll explain that after. You want to make sure that whatever operation happens after zero takes exactly the same amount of time and energy and whatever as the operation you would do when there's a one. Right. Because otherwise, somebody's going to listen to your CPU. You know, I'm saying listen quite loosely, Mm -hmm. but it's like you have a statoscope and you put it on the CPU and you listen to it and you hear that it's like me <laughs> and that tells you okay so it's you know it's reading zeros it's reading ones it's reading zeros i didn't zeros, know you i didn't know you speak computer i speak computer so if you can somehow hear in the in the widest sense of the word hear that the cpu is processing 256 bits then you know what the private key is and you can extract it and so cryptographers make sure that they write the code in a way that you don't hear the difference but unfortunately then it turns out all the time there's some problem with, uh, in this case, I guess the CPUs that spoil the result anyway in some sort of behavioral change. Yeah, and but, it's basically like all CPUs, like Intel. and Basically, if you have a CPU, you're affected. That, that's sort of what uh, Hertz bleed page Yeah, but the thing suggests. is about these type of attacks is you need to get pretty close to somebody's CPU to be able to do it mm-hmm. for one thing. Now, there's two ways to get close to somebody's CPU. One is you can like physically visit somebody and put something in their computer. Um, the other is that you're running some program on the computer. So you're running, a, you, you basically put some malware on somebody's computer. And this malware could be a JavaScript advertisement on Google sitting somewhere, right, in a, in a browser tab that you're not even paying attention to. And this JavaScript advertisement is very carefully trying to listen to what your computer is doing. Uh, it might be, for example, your JavaScript advertisement might be doing a simple calculation itself, and it's measuring how long does this simple calculation take. And one, you know, it finds out, oh, my simple calculation took 10 milliseconds, and then it took 30 milliseconds, and now it took 10 again. Hmm, the CPU must be really busy with something. Hmm. And then if that something is is a nice repeating pattern, then eventually it'll be able to detect it. But that gets to the second problem. It's it's not a very clear signal. So you probably want to measure like a hundred times or a thousand times uh, to see if you see a repeating pattern. And if you see a repeating pattern of 256 bits, then you can guess, oh, that's probably a private key. Let me let me give that to my uh, my boss and see if they can steal some Bitcoin. 
So that's where the address reuse gets in, because if you only use this, the private key once, then you've only got one shot to try and measure it through this indirect method, and you probably won't get a very good signal-to-noise ratio, and so you probably won't be able to right. read out the key. So if you use if you reuse addresses and therefore reuse signatures, you're more clearly... Yeah, uh, but even then, like this would assume you're, you're reusing the same address like hundreds of times a second on the same computer, not over the space of a month right. right, or a year, because that malware is not going to be sitting on your... Well, it might be if it's patient, um, but probably not. Right. So, so it's a very theoretical attack again, but it's I would guess so, possible. but I haven't read it in enough detail. It depends on what you're doing. There, there are keys that are used a lot more often. There, it's a, it's a bigger problem. Right. But yeah, address of use helps in that sense that every key is only used once. Right. The Bitcoin Optech newsletter does point out that this problem was sort of already known within Bitcoin because this is how some of the hardware wallets were attacked in the past. Well, this general pattern of this timing has been used against hardware wallets. Yeah, right. exactly. Because uh, And there it's a little bit different. So in the case of a hardware wallet, what you're, the scenario you might be worried about is some thief gets your hardware wallet physically in their hands. Mm -hmm. And now they can sign the same message as often as they want. Right, so this is very different from you just using casually using your own wallet, and you might only use your address once. But if you've got somebody's hardware wallet, you can probably make it do something a million times over, and that, and then listen very carefully, and you might be able to hear the private key on the wallet, um, and and such attacks. So yeah, that's right. familiar. Okay. Well, in conclusion, I I would say the biggest problem with address reuse right now, by far, is still privacy. Yep. And then security is sort of theoretical. You know, there are some potential vulnerabilities, but it's really a privacy problem. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to security, the address use itself is not the vulnerability. It is something that can help slightly reduce the impact of the vulnerability. Okay. Uh, yeah, there are some more problems mentioned on the wiki, but I think these are sort of very niche like barely worth mentioning like uh people might throw away their private key because they assume that they won't be paid on the same address but then if they are well then the money is lost i guess that's true but why would you throw away a private key i don't know just seems, well, and that's seems what... kind of like grasping at straws for problems well that this is probably more from before the time then the keys were uh, the addresses were deterministic Right, so right now you still have the master key, but you keep getting a new address. Um, there's uh, something else that's mentioned is that it could sort of dis disrupt fee estimation a bit. If you have several outputs on the same address and you want to spend one, then the wallet might not be able to correctly calculate how much it is for some reason. That does not ring a bell. I, I didn't really understand that argument either, to be honest, and it seems very niche anyways. And then there was some problem that doesn't even really sound like a problem to me, which is just confusion about terminology. I mean, I guess like, yeah, that, that's been an argument that we shouldn't even use the word address for Bitcoin addresses because an address like an email address or the address where you live does suggest that it's going to be the same thing that you send stuff to every time. So a better term would be Bitcoin invoice or, you know, someone, a Belcher suggested invoice address. And then hopefully after a while, people will just forget about the address 
part, but address is not a great name actually for a Bitcoin address. Yeah, it sounds like one of those things that will just stick around. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to get rid of it at this point. I, and also, you know, if you try to change the terminology, that's that's really just difficult. Generally, it Clearly. might be easier to just, you know, make sure that people understand how things work and eventually they don't worry too much about the terminology. Right. Um, Anyways, uh, I yeah, that's that's our episode, I think, Shorts. I think we made it to the end. Excellent. I well, thought this was going to be an episode of like five minutes, but I think we were, we were able to stretch it to, what was it, half an hour maybe in the end? I don't know. It depends on what the editor makes of it. Uh, true. So um, I guess uh, thank you for listening to Bitcoin. Explained.